My friends, we're back in the book of Kings, and we're starting off in a season in Solomon's life where he's established the kingdom, and now we're going to have a record of his kind of administrative triumphs that's going to lead into the building of the temple. And so this section isn't action-packed. It's a lot of reporting. But when you read this, I want you to have in mind that this is meant to be seen as a fulfillment of the promises of God. Israel is in the land. They're being ruled over by a wise king at this point. And this age of Solomon is meant to be a little bit like heaven on earth with the fulfillment of God's promises. God's about to come and dwell in the temple in the midst of the land, and it's a time of blessings. In David's life, he fought his enemies all around and and defeated them, and so now Israel's in a time of ascendancy, and this is the high point of Israel's political dominance in their territory in the Middle East. And we'll see that. And so why don't we just get going here, and I'll point out some other things as we go. Chapter 4 of 1 Kings. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elihoref and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zadab, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of forced labor. So, I think we said it before in Samuel that when we have these times where the Bible stops and tells you who's in different positions governmentally, this signals a significant shift in the narrative. And so we're coming out of Solomon being established as king with this kind of emergency kingship scenario, and then Solomon overseeing the death of David, and then Solomon um, eliminating potential political threats. And now we get this report of who's in charge of what. And this signals this change, and it's this change from, uh, you know, solidifying dominance in the kingdom to what is built through this time of peace and through the wisdom of Solomon. And we get these names of who's in charge of what. All right, verse 7. Solomon had 12 officials over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month of the year. Now, this is going to be... Again, it, it's, it's a record, so it's detailing um, kind of Solomon's greatness that he can set up this monthly cycle. Um, but it also, if you think about it, it's a bit of a record of the kingly taxation <laughs> that's over Israel. Now, Israel's really blessed and their economy is really good at this time. But it's also going to be a sense of like, wow, look how much um, material the king is absorbing out of the lives of Israelites. But and, and I think it also gives honor to these people who served the king in his reign. And so their names are written down as a memorial for them. Verse 8. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, which is an interesting movie, the Charlton Heston one. Ben-Decker in Makaz, Sha'albim, Beth-Shemesh, and Elon-Beth-Hanan. Ben-Hur. 
Hesed in Aruboth, to him belong Soko and all the land of Hefer, Ben Abinadab, this is really testing my Hebrew pronunciation, in all Naphoth Dor, he had Tapheth, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. So here's this person who's married into the kingly family. Baana, the son of Ahilad in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Beth Shean, that is beside Zer. Rethan below Jezreel, and from Beth Sheen to Abel Mahalah, as far as the other side of Jokmeam. Ben Geber in Ramoth Gilead, he had the villages of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, and he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, sixty great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Ido in Mahanaim. Ahimaaz in Naphtali, he had taken Basmath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Okay, so here's another person who's married into the royal household. So these are all high officials. Baana, the son of Hushai in Asher and Beeloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah in Benjamin. Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead, in the country of Sihon king of the Amorites and Og, king of Bashan. And so mentioning those kings would cause us to think back to the time of Joshua and Moses and how Israel had conquered this land. And now finally, you know, the land is fully established, you know, generations later and is being ruled over by a dignitary in the name of Solomon. And there is one governor and one governor who was over all the land. So that ends this part of, of uh, naming how these different regions are each responsible for the palace's needs on a monthly basis in a 12-month cycle. Verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So this is what I mean by... Um, this is like a summary chapter. When you hear Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, they ate and drank were happy. This goes back to the Abrahamic promise where God told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand of the sea. And so this verse right there, verse 20, is there to say God is faithful to his promises. In the last couple of verses, we just remembered how God gave the land through conquest over Bashan and Og. And now we're hearing that Judah and Israel um, were united. Okay, they're going to become divided later on as countries. And they were a bit divided under the age of David. Remember, Judah made David king first and then the rest of Israel after that civil war. But now they're united under David now, continue to be united under Solomon and the promise is fulfilled. They have multiplied. They have become like the sand of the sea, and they ate and drank and were happy. They're living under the blessings of God, which means God's promises have been fulfilled. This was this verse is saying, and this is what this chapter is about. They're under a wise king. God's blessing them. There's peace. God is faithful. Verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt, and they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So inside the borders of Israel, they're multiplied, they're numerous, and they're happy. And then it talks about next how along the borders of Israel, um, Israel has conquered, and they're dominating the, the regions, the countries around them, and Solomon is receiving uh, Tribute, And this, I think, is also fulfillment of the promise from Deuteronomy that, you know, if if 
Israel's faithful to God. They'll be the head and not the tail. They'll lend and they won't borrow. They'll have military victory and they won't be under military suppression like in the age of judges. Verse 22, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat ox and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, beside deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. He had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tishpa to Geza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had Okay, so we'll stop there, actually. So again, we're in this <clears throat> period where it's just trying to say, like, God's been faithful. So they they have all this supply. And I could be wrong there. Maybe, maybe after reading this, it sounds like a lot of Solomon's provision is actually coming from the areas around Israel. So the taxation is maybe more over the conquered areas and not Israel itself. But um, he's just, just recounting the political dominion that God has given Solomon and with blessing, right? There's peace. And even, you know, these nations around Israel, because they're not fighting with Israel, they're not dying, right? So these nations, even though they're not on top, they're not actually being destroyed. And so there's kind of like a blessing flowing out just because Israel has peace with all these people, even though it's not like the gospel where the Gentiles are made co-heirs along with the physical descendants of Abraham. This is this is like a hint of the gospel, but it isn't the gospel because in Christ we are made fellow citizens in the commonwealth of God through Jesus. And you have this line there where they lived in safety and every man is under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So this is this great picture again, this picture of the fulfillment of blessing. So a vine is actually you know, a grapevine, they're hard to produce. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to produce a crop of wheat than to take the years to build up a vineyard. So when it's talking about everyone uh, being under their own vine, their own fig tree, it, it means like people have possessions, they have wealth, they they have the land that's allotted to them. Each family was allotted lands when they, when they came into the promised land and each person got their home and they got their farm. And they've been working it and their work is blessed. And so their fig trees are being prosperous and their vines are being prosperous and it's not being lost through warfare and blight and disease and stuff like this. So this is just this picture of fulfilled blessing in the time of Solomon so that even your ordinary citizens aren't being destroyed under the wrath of God or under political upheavals. But everything, even though it's fulfillment, it's not a full fulfill, fulfillment, too many F's there. There's, there's trouble on the horizon. So verse 26 says, And Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now in Deuteronomy it said the kings are not to amass horses like this. They're not to try to keep up with the political and military might of the nations around them. They're in, instead meant to trust God for their military deliverance. And so they're not to do stuff like this where they amass tens of thousands of horses. And so Solomon is we're seeing signs that he is becoming more like a pagan king by doing something like this. Verse 27, And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They left nothing lacking, barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. So 
I'm reading this, and I think it's a bit of both. Solomon is getting tribute from the surrounding nations that increases his wealth, plus you have these dignitaries over Israel that each um, have their own duty to supply for the, the king out of the areas they, they rule over in Israel. And so, yes, it's, it's kind of both. Everyone's blessed, um, but there's also quite a bit of taxation going on here. And so um, it's a high point in Israel's history, but it's not perfect. And things will fall apart later on under the reign of Solomon because of his heart turning away from the Lord. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. All right, so after recounting his officials, as after recounting his uh, territorial officials who provide it for his kingdom, after talking about their dominion over the nations around there, uh, and how this is a fulfillment of God's blessing. Now we have a summary of the fulfillment of God's promise to give Solomon wisdom. And, you know, it's it's presented to us as like, he's so wise, under blessing, better than anybody else. And it's interesting, they actually name other famous wise men, either at that time or around that time. And we need to remember that the whole culture of making Proverbs was something that was widespread throughout um, the Middle East at these times. And they actually do have some records of other wise collections. I think there's like the sayings of Amenemope and stuff like this. So this would be their version of like Greek philosophers or something like this, where there were wise men who made names for themselves for coining proverbs. And in verse 32, it says that Solomon coined 3,000 Proverbs. And you have, if you actually go to the book of Proverbs, there's only about 400 and something. And interestingly, it looks like there's the amount of Proverbs, starting in verse 10, you know, where you get these kind of like two-verse Proverbs. It looks like it's the same amount of Proverbs in that collection as add up to Solomon's name. If you take the letters of Solomon's name, um, it converts into a number and it's the same amount so it looks like out of those 3,000 proverbs someone has collected a certain amount and then arranged them under the numerical equivalent of Solomon's name but we we can just see here that there were way more proverbs and songs of Solomon than we actually have in the Bible we have a few of Solomon's songs I think at least one in the book of Proverbs sorry Psalms but uh, we only have recorded still a portion of what Solomon actually did. And not only did he coin Proverbs, but he was a naturalist. He described animals and beasts. And so pretty much everywhere he went, he had wisdom. And we're going to start seeing his wisdom come through in his building projects. And if you look at verse 34, where it says people came to hear Solomon's wisdom, um, that connects with the visit of um, the Queen of Sheba that's going to be recounted in verse 9. Now, if you look at this entire life of Solomon, it is um, 
it is ordered and there is like one of these chiasms or reversal patterns that I've talked about before and so when you read uh, chapter 4 you can look to later on in Solomon's life to see where it connects with as the pattern reverses itself and in this chapter we hear about Solomon's wisdom which kind of connects with the Queen of Sheba coming but we also have you know these um, the this story of the establishment of Solomon's kingdom and this is going to correspond with later on when Solomon's heart is kind of turned away from the Lord and how he's destabilized in his kingdom and if you wonder what the central point is and I can't remember if I've shared this before but the 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 hinge point where the pattern reverses itself and starts going backwards the hinge point is when Solomon starts building his own uh, palace we're going to read that it takes Solomon seven years to build um, the palace. And then we're going to read that it takes Solomon even more time. To, sorry, seven years to build God's temple. And then it, Solomon's going to take even more time to build his own palace. And that's where things go wrong in the telling of this story. That Solomon kind of exalted himself over the Lord by building himself a greater palace than the temple. And then we're also going to read about Solomon's heart being turned away from the Lord because of his many wives, which again, um, the kings were commanded to not go making all these military and political connections with, with, um, with wives and especially unbelieving wives because their hearts get turned away from the Lord through this. But we're in the positive first half of Solomon's reign, and this is a setup so that there's connections when we're in the second kind of negative half of Solomon's reign. All right, there we go. This is uh, not your most exciting chapter, but there's really good stuff in there, and especially highlighting those verses that talk about God's fulfillment of his promises, that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea, and that the Israelite, the average Israelite, was uh sitting under his own vine, sitting under his own fig tree, and enjoying the blessings of God in the age of Solomon. Because God is a faithful God, and he is faithful to all of his promises, even more so in Christ, where our scripture tells us that all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And we see it worked out over centuries even in the history of Israel.